2: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Intelligent Squared podcast. This was another episode recorded in New York City. We had the journalist Hugo Lindgren interviewing Andrew McAfee, who is a principal research scientist at MIT and co-founder of the MIT Initiative of the Digital Economy at the MIT Sloan School of Management. McAfee has a fascinating theory, which is that even though there'll be more people in the future and they'll be wealthier and consume even more, they'll do so while using far fewer natural resources and that will move past the point of peak stuff. So from here on out, it'll take far fewer resources to make things and it'll cost less to live a comfortable life, even though the population will have expanded rapidly. We hope you enjoy listening to the episode. For those of our listeners who are in London, we want to flag up an event that we're staging. On Tuesday, the 17th of March, we have Jim Al-Khalili. Jim Al-Khalili is one of the nation's best known broadcasters and physicists. And we're staging an event with him titled The World According to Physics. And it's all about why physics matters, what can the study of physics, of energy, force, matter and the behavior of matter through space and time, what can that teach us about the universe? And what can that teach us about the nature of reality itself? Jim will be appearing in conversation with another physicist, Helen Zersky. She's one of the UK's most popular science presenters, and they will be appearing in conversation at Church House in Westminster. Like I said, that'll be on Tuesday, the 17th of March, and we look forward to seeing you there. If you'd like to buy tickets, please do so on our website, intelligencesquared.com.
1: Hello, I'm Hugo Lindgren and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at IntelligenceSquared.com. I'm here today with Andrew McAfee, the author of More from Less, How We Finally Stopped Using Up the World and What
3: Happens Next. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. And just to be clear, we've updated the subtitle of the book since since you got that. Oh, okay, what is the new one? Uh, the new story is the surprising story of how we learn to prosper using f- fewer resources. Okay, and what happens next?
1: Okay, so the 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 marketing department uh, did some extra work there, or you did some extra work to change the subtitle, and got it done in time for the print run. Nice, good work. So I'm going to start with some, with a line you had sort of towards the end of the book that kind of made me chuckle. You said, "I'm going to join this long, sad parade by arguing in favor of capitalism." Now, obviously, I, you know you. Being a little a little facetious, but tell me why this parade
3: is long and sad. The point I made is that the two subjects that leave the fewest people on the on the sidelines of a discussion are religion and capitalism. Every, everybody's got a strongly held opinion. Nobody ever changes their mind. So you know why would I throw my hat into that particular ring? And, and the reason I did it is because we're facing a, a, a deep divide, a really important debate right now about the right way forward if we're interested in being good stewards of our planet. So let's let's just say that everyone listening wants to do right by the planet that we all live on. There's a very sharp divide between people who think that we have to stop growing. We have to stop this economic engine that's all around the world that's causing economies to grow. Let's call it capitalism. It's bad for the planet. I'm not on that team. I'm on the other team. And the reason I wrote the book is that I think we have evidence of a very capitalistic, very large, very sophisticated economy that is still growing, that hasn't turned its back on consumption at all, but now is taking better care of the planet, lowering the footprint on the planet in most of the ways that matter. And, you know, here's the big reveal, that economy, that society is America.
1: Okay. And, and the, the, the main sort of theme of the book is this term called dematerialization. And I guess that's a good place to start just defining what that means.
3: Dematerialization is satisfying the wants and needs of lots of people, an entire economy full of them while using fewer material resources, using fewer atoms overall. And a while back, a couple different researchers started noticing this weird trend, first of all, in the U.K., and then in the U.S., we noticed the same thing, which is that, to be a little bit flip about it, if you weighed the overall economy every year, Mm -hmm. year after year, it would start weighing less and, and when did this
1: phenomenon start to be noticed, or when did it when did it become clear that this was happening? A guy named Chris
3: Goodall noticed this, and he put peak stuff in the UK right around the year two thousand. So before, well before the Great Recession. Okay. Uh, I don't think we've done exactly the same calculations for the United States, but work that Jesse Ausubel started and that I've picked up on says that if you look at most of the material inputs to an economy, you know, the molecules that we build an economy out of, obviously this is steel and aluminum and nickel and timber and paper and fertilizer, most of those are on a downward trend. Consumption of those is on a downward trend. And I want to be clear, it's not consumption per capita. It's not consumption per American. It's total consumption by all Americans put together. The other thing I I want to stress early and often is that this is not a globalization phenomenon. One thing I hear when I bring this phenomenon up is people saying that's just because we've We've outsourced all our pollution somewhere else. All our pollution, all of our All of our material intensity, all the stuff, we've just given it to China and other countries. We have outsourced to China. That's absolutely true. It doesn't explain this phenomenon.
1: Well, it does seem intuitive to think that, right? Because, I mean, if you think of like New York and London are the sort of cash registers of the world, they're not dealing in steel and oil and things directly, although they are dealing with it in sort of abstract terms. So how do you explain – that that evolution does seem to
3: sort of – go ahead. You're you're nodding, so I want to let you go. (laughs) And one other thing that I hear very often is, oh, you're just talking about a transition to a service-based economy. Right. And we should be clear. America is transitioning to a service-based economy. More and more of our GDP every year is accounted for by services and not manufacturing. However— we are still a manufacturing powerhouse in America. And the total amount, of, the total value, the total amount of stuff that we manufacture goes up just about every non-recession year. So it's incorrect to say that the reason that we are dematerializing is because we're not making things anymore. That's just not true.
1: Now, is it thought that the U.S. and the U.K. are ahead of the rest of the world? Are there Western European nations or other
3: countries that are that are keeping pace or are or, or ahead in this regard? That's a hard question to answer because the evidence is not really systematic. There's not there's not not a global body that keeps track of you know the weight of every economy and the the amount of consumption of every resource by country going back a long time Mm -hmm. i looked pretty hard for it i couldn't find comprehensive data that i thought was high enough quality so luckily uh by act of Congress, the U.S. Geological Service has been keeping track of American consumption of lots of resources since at least 1900. We have this amazing data because we got lucky in the United States. The U.K. apparently has similarly detailed and comprehensive data going back a long way. From what I can tell, this feels to me like a rich world phenomenon, like a richest world phenomenon. It's clearly not the case that India and China are dematerializing. Absolutely, they're not. The point I make in the book is if we want to help those countries lighten up on the planet in the ways that matter. Let's get them wealthy as quickly as possible. Let's get them over that, that resource transition and get them into this dematerializing world.
1: And, and what might accomplish that? How would, how, would, how would one accelerate that process in countries that
3: are still in a, in a, in a, in a prior stage of development? Uh, Via trade, via globalization, Uh and via this one-two punch that I talk about in More From Less, the one-two punch is capitalism and tech progress. And the reason I keep on arguing for capitalism and joining the long, sad parade is that, man, vicious competition will make companies seek to reduce their costs. They will look for every opportunity to reduce costs because a penny saved is a penny earned. If you have a bunch of lazy monopolists, they have no real incentive to drive down their costs. If you have nasty, intense capitalistic competition, people look around like crazy for ways to trim costs. Molecules cost money. Air go companies are super eager to trim molecules, and along comes this amazing tech toolkit that lets them find different ways to, you know, use fewer resources, which trim a little bit of weight off that thing, get more from less. Technology helps us do that.
1: Now, why do you think? You know, we're at a we're at a political moment in this country, at least, where so many young people have sort
3: of turned against capitalism, believe it's failed. Why do you think that's happened? The Great Recession is part of the explanation. I think that really was a a whack to a lot of families. And a lot of people trying to launch their lives and launch their careers have have found that much more difficult. I think what a lot of people are rebelling against, though, is not what I would define as capitalism. And I draw on Adam Smith in a chapter in More From Less. I draft him to help me explain what I'm talking about because I think he nailed this issue in 1776. And he said – Capital, he used different language, but right. he said capitalism is not cronyism. It's not corporatism. It's not financialization. It's actual ruthless, cutthroat competition for our business that delivers us benefits and keeps society healthy. One of his most famous quotes, which I put in the book, is he said, "Look, we, you know, whenever you put business people together, whenever they get to get, whenever they get together, they start colluding against us." He was well aware of the dangers of cartels and collusion and crony capitalism. I think that's what a lot of people are really unhappy with. So how do you start having that
1: conversation? Let, let's imagine that instead of sitting here with, with me, you were sitting here with Greta Thunberg, the Swedish teenager who has kind of led the kind of environmental cause around the world and has inspired a lot of young people. Lots in particular. of young people. Um, and she's obviously speaking a language that is really resonating. Um, how do you find the way into into the conversation
3: with her and the people who are who are, who are believing in her? I would start that conversation by thanking her for, br- for making this issue more salient for a lot of people around the world. And, and young people are a force, right? And so she's, she's galvanized that force, and I think that's fantastic. I would then try to start with common ground and say, you are deeply worried about global warming over the course of the 21st century. Great. So am I we all should be. Uh, they gave the Nobel Prize in economics last year to Bill Nordhaus because of his beautiful work to explain the dangers of global warming. And he said, look, it's uncertain. It's incredibly uncertain. And opponents of action say, hey, look, because it's so uncertain, why would we spend all that money to try to mitigate it? Nordhaus flips that exactly on its head. And he says it's exactly because it's so uncertain and because of the risk of the bad outcomes, the tail risk, the, the 10% worst outcome are catastrophically bad. You would insure against those risks. Any sensible person would mitigate those risks. So I'd say, Greta, I'm right on board with you. This is our urgent homework for the course of the 21st century. And I'd say where you and I part company is you are part of the anti-growth movement. I am part of the pro-growth movement. And the reason that's such a sharp distinction, and I want to try to bring you over to my side, is when I hear you say you're anti-growth I think that means you 're pro poverty I think that what that means what you 're saying to the low income countries of the world is you have to stay low income and what and what I hear in response to that, is some flavor of no, no, it's just that the total world economy is big enough now. And if we redistribute it, and they're right. kind of vague on how we're going to go about that, if we redistribute it, everybody can have enough and we'll take better care of the planet. Um, global GDP per person is a little bit north of $10,000 a year. Uh-huh. You are not going to get Americans to sign up to go down to that level so that Bangladeshi can go up to that level. It's just, it's not going to well, happen. Well, we've actually and it's a
1: seen bad idea. something like that phenomenon, right? In the last last 20 years with, I mean, you talk about this in the book, the sort of incredible growth in the Chinese economy has come at least partially at the expense of the middle class in this country, or at least that's, the, that's certainly the perception of it. That's the perception of
3: it. And so saying to the middle class of America, hey, we're going to take you down to you know eleven or $12,000 a year so that the rest of the world can be at that standard and we won't cook the planet, I think that's a big political non-starter.
1: Now, I would, I, I would think that one response to, to the dematerialization idea would be, okay, it's happening, but it's a little bit like slamming on the brakes when you've been going 100 miles an hour, but you're still going to hit that brick wall. And is that something you agree with? I mean, is, is, it, is it too late to, to, for the effects of dematerialization to have a strong enough effect
3: um, to stop some of the long-term climate effects. Yeah, dematerialization is about using fewer material inputs to our economy. You know, you think of, of our economy as a thing that converts inputs into outputs, things that we want to consume. Dematerialization is about l- lowering the volume of, of inputs. That's great. Climate change is about the side effects of that convert inputs into outputs right. process. Uh, climate change, global, uh, greenhouse gases are a form of pollution. And the point that I make in the book is once you start looking at greenhouse gases as pollution, things become much, much clearer we know how to deal with pollution. The the rich world has done amazing work at reducing Mm -hmm. air pollution, water pollution, uh, uh, despoiling the land. We've done amazing work. We have great progress on that. So we know the playbook for dealing with pollution. The frustration about climate change, global warming, is that we're just not following that playbook. So I would rephrase that. I'd say, what is it actually that you're worried about? If you're worried that we're going to run out of resources for the earth, put that worry aside. That's just not a thing that we need to be concerned about. Especially that's a a difficult argument for a lot of people to accept. It's a super difficult argument, uh, but my point is twofold on that one. One is we have learned that rich countries are turning the corner, so we're going to be progressively taking less from the world in the years ahead. The other part of the argument, um, we live in a really big world. It's not infinite, but it has enough resources to make all of us happy, especially if we farm in intelligent ways, especially if we recycle metals. Um, Huge amounts of all the aluminum ever produced in human history are in buildings and soda cans and things right now. We're pretty good at making efficient use of the world's resources. The world is big enough to supply us with what we need, especially given that Peak humanity is going to happen sometime in the 21st century, and then we're going to start declining in number. The world is big enough for us. We just have to not screw it up. What, what about clean water? That's an issue, obviously, in this country. Some of the major cities in the United States have, have significant water issues. Less significant than they used to be. The, the river in Cleveland caught on fire in 1969. It was actually one of the things that led to the first Earth Day in 1970. And our water, it's not clean enough. But our water, streams, lakes, ponds, rivers in America are so much cleaner than they were half a century ago. I'm thinking
1: more of sort of Southern California than than the the Great Lakes in terms of water. It's not clean water, I guess, is the issue
3: there, but water at at all. Yeah, and, and we have shortages of things like water. and We have water crises because of droughts and because we don't price that material. There are all kinds of farmers in California who have the right to take as much water as they want from rivers and I think from groundwater without paying anything for it. Great. That, that's a tragedy of the commons. We've known about that since uh, since 50 or so years ago. You, if people don't pay for a resource, they will overconsume it. That's Econ 101. We're going to take a sh- uh, quick break for a minute. We'll be back with uh, Andy McAfee in one second.
1: Hold on. Thank you All right, we are back with Andy McAfee. We're talking about his book More from Less. Andy, I want to talk to you about a big a big piece of the the book or one that's getting a lot of notice, which are these bets that you've placed. Now, I I want to back up a little bit and explain the nature of these kinds of bets and and even the background. There's a famous bet that two economists made in 1980, Julian Simon and Paul Ehrlich. Would you just explain what that was about and sort of what it what it's kind of impact in the world was? And Ehrlich was actually a biologist. Okay, biologist, sorry. So Julian Simon was economist, Paul Ehrlich was a biologist That's who right. wrote the population bomb.
3: Who wrote the population okay. bomb. And Ehrlich was one of the earliest and most adamant exponents of the view that we have to stop growing. The earth will not tolerate it. And he said, we have to stop growing our populations. He has been a big fan of China's one child policy, which is a demographic and a moral disaster. He's continuously supported that. And he said, we have to, we have to stop Consuming more and more resources because we live on a very very finite planet. We're going to use it up, and once we do, we have no more Earth. The humanity will suffer greatly because of this combination of growing populations and growing prosperity. And Julian Simon, who's really one of my intellectual heroes, said okay. that that's actually not how it works. <laughs> it sounds really plausible. More people consuming more equals bad from the Earth, bad for the Earth. What Simon said is more people consuming more will cause scarcities to happen, Mm -hmm. and they'll cause prices to go up. Absolutely. Simon said, that's not the end of the story. What will happen after that is, let's say, we start using a lot of copper and the price of copper goes up. He said, what will immediately happen is two things. First of all, prospectors will go around the world looking for more copper deposits, and other people will try to find substitutes for copper. Mm -hmm. That shortage will ease. Simon had this amazing confidence. He said that shortage will ease and the price of copper will go back down. So the thing, I think the only thing that Ehrlich and Simon could agree on is that prices of these commodities are a really interesting signal about scarcity versus abundance. So Ehrlich accepted that and then made a bet with Simon about what those prices would be. So Ehrlich and Simon uh, settled on a bet over a 10-year horizon starting in 1980. And the terms of the bet were Ehrlich, you can pick any portfolio of commodities that you want. If at the end of the period, the real price is lower, Simon says, I win the bet. that The scarcity has eased. If the real prices are higher, uh, Ehrlich, you win the bet. The, the price of that bundle declined by more than half between 1980 and 1990. So I'm doing a follow-on to that bet. Let me let me interrupt you for one second because I want to I want to
1: stay inside that moment for a second of this bet. Now, when did you first find out about that bet? Were you a teenager when you found out, or was that back when you went to grad school later and and discovered it? Or
3: like I, I want to understand like that kind I of moment. I had vaguely heard about. It. I think Wired wrote a story about Julian Simon while he was still alive in 1997, and that okay. might have been the first time that I heard about the bet in any detail. Okay. When I was researching more from less, I went back and looked at it in a lot more detail because it's right. this fascinating story. And it's part of this chapter, this fascinating chapter in the debates about economics and the environment and how do we take good care of the planet or not, between these comparative optimists and these comparative pessimists. Now, were these guys friends, or were they just uh, sort of competing intellectuals? They were not friends. As okay. far as I could tell, I think they never were actually in the same room. Oh, really? But they kind of lobbed their positions back and forth at each other for several years and then settled on this bet in 1980. And when um, Ehrlich lost the bet, he just made he he made good. He mailed Simon a check right. for the for the appropriate amount of money uh-huh. and didn't include any note or any, ex, any explanation with the check. Sore loser kind of, you think? <laughs> Your words not mine. But what I'm doing is um, ahead, yeah. Stuart Brand has launched the Long Now Foundation okay. and as part of it they have a Long Bets website mm-hmm. where you can publicly stake a prediction. Right. Uh, And it has to be accessible. Okay. So there has to be a way to say, did this thing come true or not? If you think my predictions are uh, wrong, if you think the other thing is going to happen, you can take the other side of that. Bet and then you and I put up actual real money at the start of the bet. Are you putting up any money yet? I haven't taken. I haven't. Don't even have takers. Oh, really? Okay. I'm sorry. I, I cut you off because I do want to know what the bets are. So yeah. let's let's talk about that. So my bets are about a combination of prices and quantities okay. by and large. So I'm saying two things. So this is even a more restrictive bet. Okay. I'm saying that if we come back in ten years, America will be continuing to dematerialize. It's going to be using less timber, paper, fertilizer. I think I said water for agriculture. Mm-hmm. I list a bunch of these different resources. Less cropland, you said? Uh, yes, I think I said less Lower cropland. Lower greenhouse gas emissions? Lower greenhouse gas emissions. So That's the side effects will be mitigated. Right. Uh, I, th- I I said that America will use less energy total okay. in 10 years than it does now. But with the resources where we have good price information, what I'm also saying is that in 10 years, these resources will be will be using fewer of them overall and they will be more affordable. In other words, the average person in the world will be able to afford more of these resources. So the price of the affordability is going to go up and the usage is going to go down. Now, like that's That's a strong statement, and I haven't had any takers on the other side of the bets yet. How long have the bets been available? They have been up for at least a week, and I've talked about them in a couple different venues, and I've gone back and forth with a couple folk on Twitter. And Uh So far, it's crickets. And how much money are you going to be willing to put up for these things? I think on long bets, the minimum is 200, but I have said that if I get up to $100,000 worth of takers, I'll, I'll take them on. Oh, my God. Okay, there were many like kind of really fascinating statistics
1: in the book. One of them stood out to me. It was about milk production. Ah. So you, you you said in 1950 we got 117 billion pounds of milk from 22 million cows. Yep. In 2015 we get 209 million pound billion pounds. I'm sorry from nine million cows. Now that's cited as progress, but I know some people are going to. Talk about the cows and what we've turned them into. So I'm I'm, I'm I want to ask you about that kind of balance. That is a that that's a uh, certainly an evolution in certain regards, but it
3: also is is a. It sounds like animal cruelty on another to, to other people. It's a super clear example of two things, right? One is more from less. We are getting literally more milk from fewer cows. It's kind of unarguable. But you bring up that for some of these productivity improvements that we've made, there are real moral considerations. And the animal rights people have a strong argument there. I, I still eat beef. I still eat cheese. But I understand that that's a, the, the, I respect that position. Let me take it to a, a little bit different level, but stay inside agriculture. One of the trends I document in the book is more from less with our overall our, 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 ag- yeah, With our agricultural okay. industries, not animals, but right. but crops in the United States. Uh-huh. So I document that crop tonnage, or the total amount of weight of crops grown in America, goes up at, at a really steady rate. While at the same time, we use less now fertilizer year after year, less total water for agriculture, irrigation, and a smaller and smaller uh, footprint of cropland. So just like with cows, we're getting more from less with our complete um agricultural industry and i don't really see a moral dimension there you know maybe people are worried about enslaving the stalks of wheat but we have to eat something
1: now you uh you state that nuclear power doesn't deserve its bad reputation um i would say however, that it has one and it doesn't appear to be going away. Did you watch the HBO series on Lo- Chernobyl? Loved it. You did? Gripping TV. Yes, it was quite quite amazing, but it's certainly not a good advertisement
3: about the safety of nuclear power. That's exactly right. Nor is it uh, factually accurate or scientifically accurate. Okay, but But what is true is that Chernobyl was by far the worst nuclear accident we've ever experienced. And it was objectively about as bad as you could imagine. There was a nuclear reactor core open to the sky and emitting its radiation for, I forget how many days in a row, not too far from densely populated Europe. That that was as, about as bad as you could imagine. So what's the Chernobyl death toll? Uh, there were fewer, I think, a lot fewer than a hundred people who died directly from radiation poisoning. Uh-huh. They showed that in the show pretty, pretty Yeah, and horribly. radiation poisoning is not a great way to die. Like, I absolutely acknowledge that. There was another tier of people who got thyroid cancer. Uh-huh. And I don't want to minimize any kind of cancer. If you have to have cancer, thyroid is probably one of the ones you want because you can extract some, you can take somebody's thyroid out and they can live a very healthy life. Okay. So, but thyroid cancer is bad and Chernobyl caused it, but that didn't add to the death toll in a huge way. Okay. The official report from, I think it was the United Nations and the World Health Organization and whatnot said that there are probably going to be about 4,000 additional cancer deaths As a total result from the entire area covered by the Chernobyl radiation cloud, be about 4,000 additional deaths from cancer. However, they also said those deaths will be difficult to detect because about a third of the people die of some kind of cancer. Now, again, I'm not trying to minimize the scope of the tragedy. I'm trying to be honest about the scope of the tragedy. I, I assure you in Europe now, there are many, many more than 4,000 deaths a year directly attributable to coal plant pollution. That comparison is not even close.
1: So how do you turn that tide, right? I mean, it feels like it's going one way pretty strongly, and it's hard to imagine
3: anybody doing much to, to turn it back the other way. I mean, how does it How does it even start? You start by changing the conversation, right? Right. And, and there's this kind of interesting tribe of people who are coming together for, to advocate for more nuclear power. And that includes folk like Stuart Brand. It includes Bill Gates. It includes Reed Hoffman. It include some investors. People out there are, there's a coalition forming to try to say, guys, if we're actually being evidence-driven as opposed to fear-driven, and if we are actually concerned about lowering greenhouse gases from all of our power generation, we have one power source right now that is, you know, very, very green. Right. Very potent very safe when you look at the evidence. The costs are at least in the ballpark. France and Sweden have very reason very cheap electricity in Europe, scalable and not intermittent. The problem with solar and wind is that it's not always sunny or windy. We have one kind of magic power source that has all those characteristics, and we are turning away from it. Now, we need to work on storing nuclear waste. We need to work on new reactor designs. Absolutely, absolutely. But all those characteristics that I mentioned, those are accurate, and it makes no sense to turn away from it.
1: Well, I noticed in your book, I mean, you have you have blurbs from a, a true A-list of, of tech royalty. I, I um, called in all my favorites. <laughs> no, there's some Mark Andreessen, Reid Hoffman, but I think in this country, there's a little bit of a of a of a skepticism about the sort of tech world and and it's sort of a sense of their self dealing, and they they haven't in this current climate at least been very been very effective at at communicating to a a broader base of the of the public. How, how do you think that changes?
3: I, I'm. I'm not so sure about that. I think, okay. to your point, I think the elite conversation around technology in America and other rich countries is sharply negative these days. Uh-huh. And there is a tech clash, and we are worried about the, the huge amount of power these companies wield. We right. should be honest. These are extraordinarily powerful Wealthy organizations, great. We should be vigilant about that. But if you actually look globally at how people feel about technology, go try to take the smartphone away from somebody in Sub-Saharan Africa and and see how they feel about that. Uh Go try to shut off somebody's social media account in Chile, for example, and say you have you can't communicate with your network anymore. That that conversation is really not going to go anywhere. So I think there is a big difference between the rich world elite, very fretful pessimistic conversation about technology and the global attitudes and the global trends toward technology. I, I think, you know, I just happen to live in this Cambridge bubble where it's all about, oh, my heavens, let's find ways to be more negative about technology than each other. That's I, the conversation I, in Cambridge? I think in, you know, up and down the Northeast Corridor in elite journalistic media, l- legal, academic circles. Yeah, the conversation is extremely negative, And there, there are challenges. Like I'm not saying the tech industries and the companies are perfect at all. However, do, do we honestly think that we're going to be able to tread more lightly on the planet and take better care of our fellow humans without a heck of a lot more digital technology and a heck of a lot more innovation from from exactly these companies? There's no chance. No chance.
1: How, how do you deal with that when you're in a public setting, when you're speaking or uh, on your book tour or whatever? Um, do you get do – you, do you deal with anger directed at you
3: and 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 what's your what's your what, – how do you deal with it? It comes – Sometimes in public, uh-huh. and it comes more often on social media. Okay. So when I've put, you know, claims from the book and graphs and and put out some of my arguments on Twitter, right. you get this reflexive hostility back. And you, I think you just have to have a, th- a thick skin about it. If I find somebody who just who doesn't just want to flame me, right. but they actually want to have a conversation, then like the, with the hypothetical question with Greta, right. start by acknowledging common ground. Start right. by saying, look, I think we're actually worried about the same challenges. Right. Let me tell you why, why I b- believe the things that I believe. Uh, do you have meaningful exchanges on social media? Is that, does, is that still possible? <laughs> it, yeah, it is still possible. I, I'm not saying it's the... Norm, it's the rule. But I have come across people who ask, I can tell they're asking a sincere question. They're not just sea lioning me. They're asking a sincere question and they're, they'll take the evidence on board. Now, you very rarely get the immediate epiphany, oh my God, I've been wrong about everything and you're completely right. But you, can, you can kind of sense <laughs> that. Some, has that ever happened? No. 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 And, you know, the, the, the somewhat pessimistic way to say it is that you will never displace a feeling with a fact. Right. I, I'm a little more optimistic than that. If you start from common ground and say, here's why I believe what I believe, you know, take a look, weigh the evidence, and maybe, you, maybe you'll shift your viewpoint. Some people will.
1: One of the pleasures of the book is that there's just all kinds of great sort of bits of history and and, and science and, and economics in there. And, and uh, on the subject of sad stories, there's one about the disappearance of the bison from from the Great Plains. And, and there was a, just a little... Like detail in there that kind of struck me that that one of the one of the things that led to the acceleration anyway of of its disappearance was the popularity of bison robes yeah which I hadn't heard about and uh, that struck me as a kind of perfect example of a of sort of capitalism at its worst where <laughs> exactly. where this, this this sort of like trendy thing happens that has no long term or even short term benefit to the well being of humanity and it has sort of real world effects that are you know it kind of irreversible terrible, um, right? And and uh, compare that to another s- sort of similar story. Now that's a capitalist event uh, or uh, effect. But uh, another story, a sort of similar story is about the killing of whales in the what I think is the late 50s and 60s by Soviet fleets which which you tell as a as a as a kind of perverse incentive kind of phenomenon. Yeah. Would you compare those two things to me and and why why they're different or or why they're the same?
3: Yeah, I I'd love to because I've been cheerleading for capitalism, I think, for some pretty good reasons. However, I'm grateful for this question because it brings up the fact that there are some things that we should not allow to be inputs into the production process. We should not let them be inputs into capitalism. And for me, it includes lots of animals, especially endangered animals, especially animals that have reproductive biology that puts them in a lot of trouble when we take a lot of them away. Absolutely. And the story of the bison hunts in the 19th century is this great example of what I'm talking about. There was a fad on the East Coast for buffalo robes. Okay, great. At the same time, there were steamships. Here's where the, the industrial era comes in because we got mm-hmm. steam power going up the Mississippi and the Missouri rivers into where the Great Plains tribes were. And these um, Native Americans were amazing buffalo hunters, especially once they got industrial age rifles. Right, And so great. Let's go satisfy some demand. So they killed at least hundreds of thousands, probably millions of total buffalo to go satisfy, I don't know, Bostonian college kids' desire to wear a buffalo robe in the first half of the 19th century. Okay, we finally came to our senses on the buffalo, and we've done that with lots of other animals that were being used up for fashion. The the sea otter almost vanished from from the face of the earth. We almost wiped out the snowy egret because it had this amazing plume that fancy women in New York wanted for their hats to to go out in society. Okay, these are mistakes. Let's put those animals outside the system. You cannot bring those animals into, you know, capitalist production. Awesome. The, the other story that I'm glad you brought up is the story about Soviet whaling because some people say you, you can't trust capitalism. Right. Right? It's just going to keep eating up the world and then They get a little bit vague on alternatives, but they pretty clearly want to centrally plan an economy. Right. I I, I cannot disagree more strongly. Okay. Every example we've seen of centralized planning turns into a – An economic nightmare, a moral nightmare, a human nightmare, an environmental nightmare. And my exhibit A for that, which is in the book, is Soviet whaling. So the Soviets signed up for all of the whaling treaties in the second half of the 20th century when we realized how severely we had depleted the stocks and that we probably needed not to do that anymore. Let these amazing animals Come back, let them rebound. The Soviet said, yeah, we signed up for that. And then they ignored the treaties that they signed and they went out and they killed something close to 200,000 additional whales at a time when that was a real number, given how depleted right. they were. The, that's bad enough. The, the, the unreal the nightmarish part of the story is that they did it for no good reason at the time they had stalinist five-year plans for the soviet industries Uh and so the five-year plan for the fisheries industry was about we're going to have more tonnage of total fish caught whales were considered part of the fisheries industry and man if you want to increase fisheries tonnage ain't no better way to do it than to go kill a lot of whales And, and, and so the russian whaling crews would use explosive harpoons you know grenade tipped harpoons fired from a cannon kill blue whales drag them onto a boat carve them up and then throw almost all of it back into the ocean they didn't have to bring it back they just had to weigh it on board they kept the blubber Russia was The Soviet Union was already self-sufficient in oil, had great right. uh, hydrocarbon reserves, didn't even need the blubber to boil down into oil, but they could come back and report their catch and they were heroes of socialist production because of this. It's just kind of this, this nightmarish scenario that went on for years and came very close to wiping out at least some subspecies of whales. So capitalism has problems and it will eat up animals if we let it, we need to not let it. Uh, central planning has even worse problems because it will continue to eat up animals for no good reason at all. We need to mention one,
1: or get you to talk about quickly one theme of the book, which is your four horsemen of the optimist, optimist. or the optimism. The optimist, four yeah, horsemen as of the opposed optimist. to the apocalypse, it's the four horsemen of the optimist. So quickly tell us what those
3: four are, and then let's 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 touch on Donald Trump there at the end, and then and then we'll, we'll we we've let talked you go. explicitly about the first two of them, which are capitalism and tech progress, which to me are a natural pair. The other pair of horsemen of the optimist are an aware public, aware that we shouldn't kill all the buffalo, shouldn't kill all the whales, have to protect the snowy egret, and a government that responds to the will of its people and responds to good ideas out there. So if I have both of those pairs, if I have all four horsemen, capitalism, tech progress, uh, an aware public and a responsive government – I kind of kick back and think that our footprint on the planet is going to lighten over time. We're going to do a better job without sacrificing our growth and our prosperity. But we need all four of the horsemen. And I talk about different kinds of failures of those horsemen uh, in – in. Context after context. Right now, the administration is trying pretty hard to roll back pollution standards in lots of different ways. I think that's a terrible idea. Our victories over pollution have been the great triumph, one of the great triumphs of the past half century in America and the rest of the rich world. Rolling them back, making it easier for oil and gas companies to leak methane into the atmosphere. Th- this just strikes me as perverse. I don't get it.
1: Andy, thank you very much for being with us today. Andy McAfee is the author of More From Less. Would you give us the new subtitle again for the book?
3: The Surprising Story of How We Learn to Prosper Using Fewer Resources and What Happens Next.
1: Great. Well, thank you for being with us, Andy. We really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.